Hello and welcome to the White Lotus Hotel that is this week's panel edition of The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison and I will be your Armand for the day. Please take a seat. Today, Afghanistan. The shame and incompetence just get worse. The fact that it's Britain's worst foreign policy disaster since Suez is only part of it. Where does the Afghan collapse leave hundreds of thousands of refugees? And what we still fondly think of as the Western Alliance. Will Afghanistan revert to being an incubator for international terrorism, even though preventing that was the whole point of the exercise? Our special guest, Shiraz Mayer, is an authority on jihad and international terrorism. So we'll be talking to him to find out what's really going on there. Plus, if you could turn back time, what would you change? We're giving our panel one imaginary time travel token each. All that and more on this week's Bunker. Welcome back to the Bunker Roundtable. Let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back from holiday to journalist, newly converted Leeds United fan and author of Honourable Misfits, a brief history of Britain's weirdest, unluckiest and most outrageous MPs, Marie LeConte. Hello, Marie. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Before you went away, you tweeted, can a therapist please explain to me why the pandemic has turned me into a teenager again? I'm in a foul mood about 70% of the time. I go out in the lash two or three times a week and at least every four days I decide I must immediately dye my hair green. This is not sustainable. Do you still feel like this? Well, um, yes and no. So I think on the one hand, I think that actually going on holiday for 10 days and seeing my family made me feel more grounded and uh, grown up again. But then that being said, I did book yet another tattoo uh, for in three weeks' time, uh, just a couple of days ago. So I'd say the jury's still out, um, really. (laughs) (laughs) What was the kind of feeling about the the current state of COVID uh, in the old country then? Because France has seen rallies against the health pass, attacks on testing centres. It's it's getting very intense. It's been interesting. So I think what really shocked me was the kind of level of like quite, so, so not necessarily sort of like hardcore anti-vax stuff or the kind of like soft anti-vax i was talking for example to because i stayed with my brother in paris um and i was talking to his housemate who's a you know, sort of like lovely woman who's about 24 um and yeah and she was kind of saying that she's been vaccinated you know both times and she was oh yeah my boyfriend uh, just refuses to get the jab uh, and makes fun of me for having got the jab and is okay that's very odd and kind of talking about it in a very normal way and then even i think like a day later i went to this shoe shop and i got talking to the woman who ran it she was very nice um, and yeah i didn't quite get it but i think so she got the first dose and then refused to get the second one because she was like you know i've done my bit that's quite enough um so i think that there's lots of that in in a way that i've not really witnessed in britain i don't think i know anyone who's even a soft anti-vaxxer in britain and even in 10 days in france i stumbled upon several of those people which is quite odd and and, uh, and yeah, and I actually ended up uh, walking basically headfirst into the anti-vax demo in Paris on the first Saturday, which is really what you want on holiday. Just, you know, people wearing yellow stars, um, which is like, probably the least tasteful thing I've ever witnessed in my entire life. Um, oh, so, yes, yeah, so I'd say yes. But, th- but then also, yeah, more, more broadly, I would say there is quite a lot of frustration, I think, at the health pass, which is incredible. Like everywhere I went, even to get a burger one day, you do have to show it on your phone and you cannot go in. You cannot order anything if you're not showing it on your phone. So people who've not been vaccinated are completely shut out from basically everything in France now. Also back on the bunker. Hello to writer and editor Justin Quirk. Hi, Justin. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Not bad. Well, it's bad news for, like I say, new Leeds United supporter Marie, because on Sunday it's been revealed that the eastern leg of HS2, two Leeds, may well be scrapped. Tory MPs are reportedly celebrating the demise of a hugely expensive white elephant, which seems a bit harsh on Kiko Garcia. Is this the levelling up the North was promised? You're not going to get your railway line? Well, it is in the sense that levelling up was a fairly fatuous slogan with almost no actual substance, political will or planning behind it. Um, There's a couple of thoughts on that. Firstly, I absolutely love train travel and any system which made it easier to get around the country at high speed 
and live and work in different places uh, would be fantastic. But secondly, I think, I mean, the MP for Rother Valley, Alexander Stafford, was probably onto something when he said that, look, for many of these areas, it's essentially running before they can walk in terms of infrastructure. And what people actually need are vastly improved local and cross-panel bus services. And I think that's something that we totally miss the importance of in London. And that's a huge issue in almost everywhere outside the M25, that just getting around is incredibly different, difficult. And thirdly, I was sort of thinking it highlights the sheer complexity of this whole idea of just levelling up anywhere and how many interconnected parts there are. And I think something you've really noticed over the last sort of 15 years or so, there's been this sort of real renaissance of the great northern cities. But in parallel with that, as they've grown, you've seen the sort of smaller satellite towns seem to have really suffered because they sort of bleed the life out of them. So, you know, so Leeds seems to be absolutely booming whenever I go there. But then it's sort of bleeding the life out of Bradford or, you know, Manchester thrives while places like Bolton go backwards. And I fear that for this not to be the case, it needs, you know, long term dedicated planning from extremely serious politicians guided by experts. So, no, I'm not totally confident that anything is going to get levelled up, train or otherwise. Yeah, don't hold your breath. Our special guest this week is Dr. Shiraz Mayer, writer, analyst and director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation and Political Violence at King's College London. He's the author of Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea, the set text on the topic. Welcome to The Bunker, Shiraz. Thanks for having me. We're going to get into a lot of detail on the ideological background to what's happened in, in Afghanistan. But I mean, you've been covering this topic and it, it, deeply involved in it for two decades and more. How did you feel about the, about the fall of, of Afghanistan you know, from, from your point of view? I mean, had you seen this coming since Trump declared the pullout? I think it was always clear that the, the Taliban were coming back. That, that much wasn't uh, a surprise. But I think everybody, including the CIA, you know, were, were completely blown away by the scale and the pace of what transpired. I mean, just how quickly the Taliban have got into Kabul um, I think that's what's been the most shocking thing for, for everyone working on this and looking at it. Is there anything within Talibanism that, that has given them this advantage or has it been just a loss of will from the West? Well, I think there's two things. I mean, of course, the Taliban are hugely resistant, um, uh, as is a lot of sort of various jihadist organizations, right? They have uh, this, this tremendous ability to, to endure, uh, in, look, in, in this case, two decades of a global war on terror. If you think back to what we've seen over the last two decades, the idea that these guys would still be standing, you know, is pretty staggering. So in that sense, there is an inherent resilience to the movement. I look at some of that in my last book in terms of the ideological resilience of the movement and its ability to, to, to withstand some of this. But I think that is also coupled with what you said, a, a sort of broader loss of will by the West, not just by the United States, but by Britain and others as well, who kind of feel like, fine, leave these guys to it let what happens over there happen over there. But, you know, what we'd really like is for it to stay out there. And that's the important part of this. And I think that's been the part that the um, jihadists have learned. And obviously, I'll, I'll elaborate more on that as we dive into the topic. But the point is, they are um, that they are learning and becoming more pragmatic. As well as being completely on top of the uh, state of jihadism and terrorism, you're also a cricket guy. And Liz Trust just announced that the UK's new trade envoy to Australia will be noted Brexiteer Ian Botham. Are you impressed by this? What kind of skills and experience is Botham going to bring to making absolutely definitely the right man for the job? You know, I, I think it's quite funny. I thought it was a bit of a joke when I first heard it, that I sort of looked into it a bit more and realised, no, it's, it's really happening. But I think it speaks to two things. The, the first is that, I mean, Botham does have commercial interests out there. He's 
he's you know been growing uh, and producing wine for about two decades and so he does have a sort of working knowledge uh, at least from that perch but more generally i think if you're looking at politics now you know the rise of people like trump and farage and everyone else there's more of a sense of personality and uh, sort of large characters occupying that space and that's certainly what botham does he's you know he's popular down under the aussies uh, you know respect him for his sledging and, and all the rest of it so i think actually having a sort of personality like him a sort of big character like him down there might actually not be the most stupid thing in the world i mean it'll all go wrong in two months and you'll, you'll <laughs> well, there's a strong suspicion that he was just appointed to wind up the likes of me basically to wind up the likes of us who listen to this podcast well look that may well be part of the the equation too i, I couldn't say but i look i think you know it, it, we're in this era of sort of celebrity politics and, and let's see what both of them can do The Afghanistan crisis continues to worsen, with the Taliban now warning that they will not move their deadline for troops to leave the country. Boris Johnson's plans to exhort the G7 to extend that deadline now seem pointless. Meanwhile, scenes in Kabul airport continue to be horrific, and US officials are expressing growing concern about a threat from the Islamic State in Kabul. Shiraz, we're going to get to the ideology in a minute, but I mean... Was it inevitable that this was going to be ignominious when Trump made his deal with the Taliban in Doha in, in February 2020, that he committed to the, a withdrawal date rather than a method or indeed any kind of concessions before it would, it would happen? Well, I think that's the key point. You know, it's really important that we contextualize what we're seeing here. For a lot of people, of course, who aren't following this day to day, there has been a long process of negotiation. Um, and that's been going on with the Trump administration, with Pompeo directly at times. Uh, and of course, you know, continued by the Biden administration once it came into power. So this has not come uh, as a complete surprise. Uh, everyone knew that it would happen. It's, as I said before, it's a scale uh, and the pace at which things uh, happened. But there was no, there was no question really that the Taliban would be coming back in some shape or form. What what Doha was really about was discussing what the contours of that return look like. And this is why you can see a much more intelligent movement that's emerged. The last time uh, the Taliban marched on Kabul in, in uh, 1996, they made a beeline for the former president, tortured him, killed him, and then hung him outside the presidential palace. Now, you know, we're not seeing anything like that this time, a much more restrained, much more savvy Taliban who have come into Kabul, who are working with the United States uh, in and around the airport, uh, very much waiting for them to get the heck out of the country by the end of this month. And they're just waiting uh, uh, for their moment. So I think, you know, this was always going to happen. But, you know, the, the Taliban have really exploited the moment for their own benefit and leveraged it to maximum effect. Biden's been attacked for keeping his allies in the dark and making inadequate provision for evacuation. Do you think that that is true? What should he have done better? with there other approaches that the US could have taken? I think there are. I mean, look, I think Biden has really, um, uh, even if you look at his speech recently in uh, um in the United States, it was as if he was addressing Trump space rather than anybody else. And I think that is indicative of just how skewed uh, the US uh, uh, political temperature and debate has become. Uh, Trumpism, if we call it that, has, you know, subsumed even the Republican Party. And it, it's, it's pulled all of the political landscape in a particular type of direction where ultimately, you know, Biden's speech could have been uh, uh, something that, you know, more eloquently um, 
ex President Trump would have done it, but was nonetheless the kind of same types of things. We must not do these forever wars. It's not for us to stand out there and have American soldiers lose their lives to these people. All of those kinds of same sentiments are actually what Trump established four or five years ago in the national uh, debate. And so to that extent, the Allies have been kept in the dark. It didn't have to be like this. Yes, we can say the Taliban were always going to be back in Kabul. These things were always going to happen. But the utter chaos and the uh, acute human suffering we're seeing now of the Afghani people who need to get out, who we have owe something to um, because they've worked with us, they've supported us, supported the war effort, all of those kinds of things has ended in absolute farce. And, you know, people, I think in sort of hackney terms at times, you know, kept talking about Saigon. Well, look, this eclipses anything that we've seen, you know, Kabul with images of men falling off planes and plummeting to their deaths, I think will be a defining moment for the United States and its projection of power across the world for many decades to come. The $64 billion question during the rounds is, what was it all for? Was it a waste of time and lives and political capital? How do you see it? Was it a complete waste of everything? There, there was at least a 20-year period when Islamic fundamentalists were not in power in Afghanistan. You know, I think Tom Tugendhat's speech in Parliament um, last week was actually very, well, very much on the money. And, you know, he said that it feels like betrayal. It feels like a loss. And, you know, we're going to have to salvage through to find the good points. And, and I think if we uh, can take a step back, then we can look to some things. Like, I suppose we tend to think of these interventions in all or nothing terms. We think of Iraq 2003 in those terms as well. You know, are we expecting full and free elections and the immediate establishment of sort of liberal values and equal opportunities and rights and protections for women and minorities and these types of things. I think if we think of it in those uh, fairly binary terms, and of course this has all been, you know, a completely futile moment uh, uh, and sort of intervention. However, if we peel back and look to what was happening two decades ago, then the first point is 9-11 from the cold hard security angle was the product of a lack of intelligence oversight and understanding we do have now a lot of uh, oversight and, and uh, intelligence gathering capability inside Afghanistan to try at least and prevent anything of that type of scale or attack happening again. The second more interesting point is if the Taliban really have emerged as a slightly more pragmatic movement who are going to stick to the things that they're saying, and I think that's highly debatable, but let's assume that it is the case that the Taliban are now going to allow women to uh, pursue their education, to pursue careers, to um, work in the media and to hold you know, members of the government to account and all those kinds of things. Well, if that's one outcome, yes, it's a rollback from what we've seen uh, um, when we were physically in the country, but it nonetheless is an improvement of the Taliban's own standards. And we have seen that kind of jihadist pragmatism arising in parts of northwestern Syria, uh, for example, where Hayat Tahrir al-Sham is running uh, uh, the show through something called the Salvation Government. And again, this is not somewhere where you or I would want to live, but again, in relative terms, it does represent an evolution in the way that jihadists are governing and thinking about governance. I think that is a positive development, albeit a, a marginal and incremental one, um, and one that it's hard to look to at this precise moment in time and cheer precisely because of uh, uh, the sort of drama of, of what we're seeing still unfolding and the tragedy of it all. 
Justin, the Tory party is in pretty much open revolt over this at the moment. And uh, Dominic Raab has been the lightning rod for this anger, possibly for lack of somewhere else to profitably put it. Uh, Raab, who infamously called the British the worst idlers in the world, took a week-long £40,000 holiday, said he didn't want to be disturbed and lobbied the Prime Minister not to have to come home. I mean, it's it's very small beer next to babies being thrown over barbed wire by their mothers. But how has he survived so far? Has, has he survived, do you think? It's a very good question. I mean, he survived... I think largely because we now have a political culture from the top down where almost nothing is a resigning offence. You know, when you look at what someone like Priti Patel has survived, what Cummings did survive for a long time, the entire foundational myth of the contemporary Conservative Party now seems to be that everything is a game and playing by the rules is for suckers. So there's that. But then I think in a more sort of pragmatic short-term way, he also performs quite a useful function at the moment and to some degree the one which Cummings previously performed in that he's so almost cartoonishly repulsive, he acts as a sort of lightning rod for a lot of public feeling which might otherwise be going in the Prime Minister's direction. And surveying some, you know, the Cabinet and the government at the moment, those really seem to be the only two options for members of it when scandal strikes. You go out as a human shield or you go into complete radio silence, which someone like Michael Gove seems to be doing. I mean, I can't actually remember the last time I saw Michael Gove at something. You know, he just maintains this sort of ghostly presence on Twitter, silently retweeting things. But those seem to be the only two options at the moment. And Rob is very much in the human shield camp. I mean, the behaviour of Rob is a sharp contrast with the the 19 British personnel working on the ground in Kabul, including the ambassador, Sir Laurie Bristow, who's famously been praised for hand-processing visa applications there. Against the ignominy, there are these very small stories of you know, what we, the way we would hope that the, the British would behave. We talk about Suez a lot. We've mentioned it already in this podcast. Neither you nor I are actually in the British establishment, but what kind of psychological toll do you think this might be taking that, you know, that on their watch, a disgrace on that scale has happened? I think it's really interesting. I mean, we touched on this in last week's show that the thing that may see a different public response to this that we normally get to humanitarian crises abroad is that military element and specifically the element of military betrayal. I think think you're right. I think that's a very big, very deeply resonant thing for a lot of the public. Um, But I think part of what gave the debate in Parliament last week such an unusually visceral tone was that it was such a brutal, unvarnished illustration of where a series of policy decisions and ideological calculations by this government have led us. And I think it's very easy to overestimate the importance of the short term and to miss the longer term shifts that are going on in any time. But it felt that you had this entire political class who've been steeped in the idea that we're not just honourable, but we always somehow pull it out of the bag. That kind of blaggers, hard work is for swats, turn up on the day and busket mentality that everyone seems to be so enamoured with in the upper reaches of British society. And the same mentality, which you know, means for years, we've never properly prepared for penalty shootouts in the football. Yeah, we can just turn up and do it. And the idea that essentially we've got friends all over the world and we can always call in these old favours when we need to. And instead, what we saw unfolding in pretty much real time, I think in Parliament last week, was the penny dropping that America is backing away while we've fairly comprehensively burned our bridges with Europe and there's no rabbit left to pull out of the hat. And I think one of I think Ian Dunst said in one of his columns last week, it was sort of etched on people's faces in the Commons, you know, this moment of sort of horrible realization. And in terms of the longer psychological toll, I think we only have to look at their equivalents on the left 
to see how the complete failure of one's project leads usually not to introspection, but to sort of rancid infighting. So I'm not hugely hopeful that it will lead to some some, uh, great moment of revelation. Marie, um, you're a Commons reporter. You're in the thick of these people. Shire Tory MPs and white van man alike tend to consider themselves kind of you know, mystically connected to to our boys. How, how do you think this humiliation is going over with that chunk of conservatism? Oh, that's a good question. So obviously, I've been away in the last week, so I've not actually spoken to anyone in in the past week. But and I'll say it's actually probably a bit more complex than that because you know, on, on the one hand, I think you've got especially the kind of 2019 intake uh, Conservative MPs. I think these are MPs who are particularly sort of, you know, interested in domestic issues, to be completely honest with you. You know, I feel like if you talk to them, they're not that interested in foreign policy at all. You know, on a, taking the broader view, even, you know, Brexit was at the end of the day basically not about foreign policy at all. So I think on that front, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'd be worried if I were number 10. But it's also, you know, we forget, I think, but austerity hit the army very hard. And if you talk to people who are very sort of like defence-minded and kind of work in those sectors, they're not best friends with the Conservative Party either and have not been for many years now because, again, you know, I think uh, because of austerity and kind of cuts, et cetera, and spending cuts, you know, they've not, they've not just not had that good a relationship with uh, with the army and with the kind of, again, the defence sector. So I'm not, I'm not really sure that, you know, that relationship was necessarily there entirely to begin with. But that being said, you know, it does actually help, I think, that a number of Conservative MPs have served in the army and, um, as has been mentioned already, you know, gave these incredible speeches last week in the House of Commons in the chamber. So I'm not, so, so yeah, again, I, I would say it's probably not as clear cut um, as it initially appears. One standout is we've seen what looks like real cracks in the cabinet. Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, you know, on the verge of insubordination. Arms Forces Minister James Heapy saying UK troops have one finger on the trigger while holding babies. That's kind of strange. I mean, this is not the this is not the most disciplined cabinet in the world, but it is quite a self seeking cabinet. Is, is should we see anything in that, or is it just likely to be the cause of the pressure at the moment? Um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest with you. I would happily guess that there is some frustration with Boris Johnson. I would guess as well that, you know, Boris perhaps doesn't care about this as much as he should. And, you know, as echoed, I think, in the reports that allegedly Dominic Raab came back from holiday two days after he should have, not because he wanted to, because apparently Number 10 told him it was fine for him to stay on holiday. And again, you know, that's been, I think, neither confirmed nor denied at this stage. But so I think there's definitely some frustration there. Not necessarily, I would say as well. And I think that's, again... (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's actually quite bleak. So I feel like I could say that sentence about literally any political issue over the past sort of like year or so, two years. I'm not even sure it's about necessarily a disagreement in position. I'm not sure these people disagree with Boris Johnson doing what he is doing. But they probably disagree because that's not even a decision, you know, he's taken for the right reasons. He's kind of just Boris and he does stuff because he sort of does and that's that. So, you know, it's not even a principle thing with that ideological sort of like thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I could definitely see some frustration being there even on the cabinet benches. France was party to the war in Afghanistan. I mean, people tend to tend to remember France not taking part in Iraq, but France was part of the original campaign against the Taliban. What were your friends and relatives saying at home last week when you were in, in, in Paris and uh, trying not to think about this stuff? Is there a similar sense of waste and shame? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's complete despair as well. And obviously, you know, it's not none of my family's work in journalism or in politics or anything, but um, but there's still people who follow the news and current affairs quite closely. And I think it was just a sense of, you know, we have no idea what should be happening next. Um, it's just all desperately sad. And obviously I'm um, half Moroccan as well. So my mum's Moroccan and she's Muslim and stuff. And, and, and then there was, yeah, that, that sense of, yeah, complete 
complete despair for the people um, of Afghanistan and, and not, and again, but I think in a sense that felt completely powerless as well. You know, the fact that, you know, even if any of us were dropped into, you know, it suddenly had the year of basically the leaders of the world, there's not much we could say that like, there's no obvious, you know, way out of this horrible, horrible crisis. So I think it was, yeah, just quite helpless despair. Um, so it's all very bleak. The big fear is that Afghanistan will turn again into a haven for terrorism and a power base for Islamist extremism. Our guest Shiraz Mayer knows more about that topic than anybody. He leads King's College London's research on the Syrian and Iraqi conflicts and also researches the political philosophy of Salafi jihadi movements. One reason he knows so much about it is because after 9-11, he himself was a member of the Islamist organisation Hizbut Tahrir. He left after the London bombings of 2005 and has become a major critic of radical Islam. Shiraz, before we get into, you know, what, what the fall of Afghanistan means for the, for the future of potential terrorism, I want to ask you about your conversion in both directions. How did you become radicalised like that? What, what did it offer to you? And then how did you get out of it? How did you sort of self-de-radicalise, as it were? Yeah, the route in is sort of fairly, uh, I think, you know, standard when you look to a number of formers and a number of people who have been involved with kind of uh, radical political Islamic movements. Um, you know, prior to 9-11, I was not really uh, all that religious. My Islamic knowledge was, was very, very weak. Um, I didn't really uh, know much about the religion in any meaningful sense. But I was always politically interested and politically engaged. And I grew up in the Middle East as a child. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. Um, there was a lot of latent anti-Americanism after 1990, in particular after the first Gulf War, um, where it was felt that you know the United States had come to Saudi Arabia and set up these military bases and that this was uh, something quite malignant and that's something we should be opposed to. So once 9-11 happened, really, um, you know, there was a sense of blowback and the sense that, well, this is kind of, you know, uh, what comes with playing with fire and interference in the region, all those kind of uh, hackneyed ideas about we have a 9-11 every day kind of um, sort of thinking that that feeds into a lot of that. So that was part of it. I'd also say, you know, a lot of it was, was a big part of identity. Like I, I was a young man who moved to the UK and I'm sort of grappling with this, you know, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? Am I British? Am I Pakistani? Am I Muslim? Am I this? Am I that? And so there was a real sense of trying to, I suppose, locate oneself within civil society. Um, I just started university. And so, again, it's a sort of great moment where we're all etching out our identity and, you know, who we're going to be now that we're finally kind of growing up and, and all the rest of it. And so, you know, radical Islamist group like uh, Hizbut Tahrir, uh, you know, comes along and says, well, look, all these things are artificial, you know, whether you're black or white or whether you're British or Pakistani or um, Saudi or Egyptian, these are all arbitrary and, uh, you know, uh, things. What, what really matters is that, you know, you have an intellectual identity um, a super cultural identity that transcends culture and geography and all these things. And that is Islam. Your identity is Muslim. You're part of this intellectually sort of this intellectual community of believers that you uh, subscribe to. And this fraternity of the faith is what is the sort of true calling for, for an individual, you know, and that's where you should be. And, you know, it's a panacea, right? It offers um, a sense of belonging. It's a club that's, you know, about a fifth of humanity, a lot of Muslims, and so you're you're sort of buying into that, thinking, yeah, this is this is what we need, and and it was a very easy, simplistic, one size fits all approach to this, you know, really bewildering, confusing, 
and what felt like epochal moments in in uh, human history. So that's what kind of took me in, and and you know, and I was once I was in, I was in. I mean, I uh, um, became very devout. I, I, you know, I did all of it really. I, I learned a lot about the religion, and I was very active within the movement. But what's really interesting is, you know, these things operate like cults, and um, you can see that time and time again. Where uh, a lot of formers I know now from from groups like Hizb al-Tahrir or other Islamic radical groups, like actually, there's a lot of traits that we share in common to people who have left Scientology, for example. Uh, and and you know in the way that Scientology operates, I'm fascinated by it because actually the way it has its own internal law, its own internal code, its own internal reporting system. If someone's stepping out of line, its own disciplinary measures, all of those kinds of that's all exactly the same uh, uh, in a group like his. But you have all of these things. You have the internal law. You have its uh, um, disciplinary procedures and so on and so forth. So it really operates in that kind of way. And that those two things. It obviously gives you a lot of comfort and support because again it's an absolutist worldview right and therefore if anything goes wrong god willed it something goes right god willed it some terrible calamity afflicts you god willed it so at all moments in time you actually have a very uh comforting sort of a a blanket to, to call upon which makes sense of the world for you and a support network around you that does the same but of course these types of things require you not to think outside of the box and and that's where I started to sort of part ways. I was doing uh, postgraduate work looking at Islamic political thought in uh, the 1920s and 30s and to a much lesser extent in the 1940s. But what that meant was previously where I was only reading Hizb al-Tahrir literature and its own readings of the world and its own readings of Islam and stuff, suddenly I was reading uh, much more broadly from different thinkers who were talking about Islam in the 1920s, when the Ottoman Empire is wrapped up, who are talking about how Muslims fit into the nation state and thinking about Westphalian politics and these kinds of things that, you know, we had all just been taught that, you know, these guys were ignorant, that they hadn't really understood Islam or that they hadn't really understood politics. We were much smarter and we'd got the answers and they hadn't. And actually, that's the important thing, you know. So, so I, I looked a lot at British India and Muslims in British India who were 25% of the population. So, a significant number, but a significant minority nonetheless, and how they reconciled that idea of, of being a minority uh, and worked with that. Um, and so, like any kind of absolutist worldview, um, once you start to tug away at, at a thread or two, you know, the whole thing unravels pretty quickly because it's built upon a series of, of uh, premises that, that, you know, you're not really supposed to challenge because if you do, the house of cards all tumbles down. So that happened, and I... Uh, basically decided I needed to get out, that these guys hadn't really understood what they were preaching or what they were going on about. To be honest, the emotional process of disentangling from the organization was really tough. And that, I would say, took about seven to nine months to really uh, leave. There weren't many formers at the time. There are loads of us now. And, you know, it's quite uh, easy to leave, particularly because also people who have left, sit everywhere on the spectrum, some have left Islam altogether, some are still very, very pious Muslims, and everyone else sort of you know, occupies the spectrum in between. And I think uh, uh, that's okay because it lets you sort of connect with the parts of the spectrum that you need to speak to. But certainly when I was leaving and when one or two others were leaving, you know, we were the early ones to get out, and it was, it was a pretty isolating and intimidating moment. Let's bring it back to the Taliban in, in Afghanistan. I mean, they now have something they didn't have before, which is not just incumbency, but unchallenged 
incumbency, the West is not going to go back in. Firstly, are they are they still a jihadist organization? I mean, your your understanding of jihad is obviously light years beyond mine. Can they be termed a jihadi organization? So that's a really great question, right? How are we defining jihadist movements today versus what we how we even conceived of them twenty years ago when nine eleven happened? I think to do that, it's worth thinking about what kind of jihadist movements there might be. Let's not forget, for example the Algerian civil war and, and groups like the GIA operating there and stuff, broadly Islamo-nationalist, right? They uh, want to take over the, the nation state that in which they're operating, in that case, Algeria. They don't have global aspirations to march on Rome or Paris, you know, in the way that ISIS would uh, talk about. The project was always about doing stuff um, at home. But this despondency sets in really through the 1990s that in fact what happens, um, at least from their thinking, is that the United States is, is the head of the snake, right? The United States backs all of these regimes in uh, the region who could be overthrown but for the um, interference of the United States. And that's what begins to focus the enmity on the U.S. It's, you know, that classic, you know, people say, oh, the far enemy. That's, that's where that calibration starts to come into the equation that people start to think, right, we need to go after the U.S. because if we can weaken its resolve to interfere in the region, then we can overthrow governments here and affect change. So that's when you can say jihad goes global, right? And that's when it obviously roars into most people's consciousness is in that post-9-11 phase when, of course, you have these big attacks on the earth. I think it's safe to say that we're seeing a sort of more aggressive return to that localism of, of, of jihad. And you can see that with uh, Jabhat al-Nusra previously, which has morphed into Hayat al-Tahrir al-Sham in uh, northwestern Syria, in Idlib province. It's holding territory, it's held territory for many years. And the leader, uh, Abu Muhammad al-Jawlani, always said that you know he would not allow his territory to be used as a launch pad for external operations against the West. That's not because he loves the West. It's not because he feels any sort of sense of you know, progressive coexistence or anything like that. But he recognizes the best way to continue to hold your territory in Syria is to make sure that people in D.C. or London or Paris or elsewhere are not talking about your organization uh, and thinking they have to come in and intervene against it. I think that's where the Taliban are at today. I think, um, I mean, let's be clear, they were never truly global jihadists, but their sponsorship of al-Qaeda sucked them into the battle in 2001, but I think they learned that lesson and you you will start to see this sense of greater localism in all the various jihadist campaigns. And to that extent, at least, you know, ISIS was for now, I think, the last of the big global jihadist movements that wanted to go after a big internationalist campaign. I mean, we're already hearing about Russia, China, um, um, you know, potentially wanting to get involved, not necessarily with boots on the ground in the region, but um, in terms of influence, in terms of news warfare and so forth. They've signaled a willingness to, to get engaged with the Taliban themselves. Do you think this is likely? What will be the consequences? Yeah, I'm not entirely or immediately sure I'd say what, what Russia wants to achieve in there. Of course, I think it's happy to see the back of the United States and will uh, make hay of what it regards as a U.S. defeat in Afghanistan. But Pakistan has always had, uh, uh, through its um, intelligence agencies, the ISI, the military intelligence, uh, a close working relationship with the Taliban. And that you know, remains the case today. 
To that extent, China will, of course, be very interested in what's happening. And again, the Chinese and Pakistan have a very close working political relationship. Of course, they both share, for different reasons, but they both share a, a sort of mutual interest in containing India and uh, checking the rise of India in the region. So um, Pakistan and, and China work um, very, very closely indeed. You can see that even in recent interviews with Imran Khan, who was asked, of course, about uh, the treatment of the Uyghurs and, and gave some very, very poor answers in, so in, in saying, you know, um, uh, he doesn't really think anything's going on with regards to them. That's because of the influence China will. So I think China's involvement in Afghanistan will be uh, quite strong and will be quite uh, intense, and it will happen via Pakistan and its intelligence agencies. Um, Shiraz, we've seen a lot of debate over how many Afghan refugees the UK should take. A surprising and, I'd say, encouraging majority of the British public is supportive of the resettlement scheme by the late YouGov numbers. Um, but do you think we could see a situation like we had around 2016, where the Farages of this world try and make political capital out of it? I think we'll see two things in relation to this. I mean, the people who are going to come here directly in some of those airlifts um, uh, by British troops and so on are people who have helped the war effort. Right? They have directly contributed to uh, British national uh, interest, but they've also directly contributed to you know, keeping our soldiers safe. I don't think we'd expect to see Farage or any of, you know, um, so political commentators like in making hay out of that because... Uh, that's not what the, the sort of the, the spectrum in which they're operating, and I don't think they would stand to gain much from that. This is very much for the, they've always talked about what they say. Um, I don't necessarily buy this to be the case, but you know they always say it's, it's about legal migration versus illegal migration, and of course um, this would be legal migration of people. I'm sure you know that they would not want to be seen to be uh, attacking. So I think that does limit. Um, the potential for them to, to go after that aspect of the debate. But I think more generally, again, as we've seen with Syria and elsewhere, there will be a large train of people coming through, uh, as it were, illegal channels, right? coming through informal channels. And that side of it, I think you will begin to see uh, more pushback because, again, you know that is really something where Farage in particular has continued to beat the drum even in, in recent weeks and months. And I think this will uh, continue to play into that. And Tony Blair was Prime Minister, obviously, when Britain first went into Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, he was back in the news this weekend when he gave his interview, described the withdrawal of troops as, quote, imbecilic. Will his intervention make any difference, do you think? Or is he a sort of voice of the past now? It's really interesting whenever we talk about Blair, because particularly with regards to foreign activity, because of course, you know, the thing by which Blair will forever be known, of course, is Iraq 2003. And it's very difficult to have any kind of public debate about Blair, particularly on foreign affairs, without that cropping up. But I do think uh, two things. I mean, the direct answer to your question is, for the reasons I just said, I don't think his intervention will make much difference. I don't think the public are uh, particularly forgiving of Blair for 2003, and I don't think there's a lot of appetite to hear what he has to say. That said, I think when you do look to uh, some of Blair's interventions, most recently on Afghanistan, but even with COVID, for example, he is very astute as a politician. I think he does have uh, a political judgment, a reading, a sort of finger on the pulse that is quite distinct and does distinguish him 
from even the other politicians of his generation. I don't think we've quite seen anything uh, like it. So, you know, uh, as I say, it's very, very difficult to have an objective discussion uh, about Tony Blair's interventions or thoughts and ideas uh, at this point. And I think that's a shame. I think he does have uh, important things to say. I thought he was broadly right uh, in terms of his interventions on COVID. And I think he's broadly right when he was talking about Afghanistan uh, as well. Uh, so the rise of ISIS in the 2000s was linked to terrorist atrocities at Charlie Hebdo, Nice and the Bataclan, and provided, I think, to an extent, some of the impetus for Brexit. What should governments be doing to prevent that expansion of terrorism happening again? I think you're right, Marie. Look, you know, in terms of ISIS was definitely part of the the, the sort of um, meta-analysis that fed into the Brexit uh, debate, and I think people's anxieties as we went into vote uh, uh, for or against Brexit when we did. What happens to prevent that kind of terrorism expanding again? Well, look, like I said, I think ISIS is probably, for now at least, one of the last big global jihadist movements, right, that wants to take on this big internationalist agenda and to attack the world and to do these kinds of things. But what's also important, I think, as we've seen, is ungoverned spaces and the um, attracted sort of uh, ability of those ungoverned spaces to be ruled over by violent actors, as we had in Syria at that time, is clearly a problem. And then similarly, ISIS at the time had momentum. Right? People like to be part of the winning team, whether that's uh, uh, supporting a sports team, whether that's part of you know joining a movement. ISIS represented the winning team on the time. If you just think now to your mind's eye of ISIS, you probably imagine those images of military parades with lots of guys that, you know, standing in uniform down the street and tanks. And this was a group that, that appeared to have success and momentum behind it. And that provided a huge impetus for people to go there to uh, get training in a permissive environment. I think that's another very important part, as I was saying, about ungoverned spaces. A lot of the uh, times we've seen attacks in the UK and more generally in the West that have failed, it's because someone downloaded a bomb-making manual off the internet and tried to construct a homemade explosive. Now, that's uh, not the best way to do things. The best way to do things, of course, is to be able to build it 50, 20, 30 times in a safe space out in the fields of Syria and Iraq or Afghanistan or elsewhere, where you can really hone that skill. And, of course, that's what made the ISIS attacks so successful. The November 2015 attack uh, in Paris was precisely able to be so devastating and coordinated because you could coordinate it, you could practice who needs to be where to to um, getting all of the various parts of that attack right so that you can you can pull it off. So I think governments will be looking to ensure that these kinds of spaces don't reappear, that they don't have the ability to have active terrorist training camps that are then used as launch pads for external operations. And, and to be honest, at this moment in time, I can't see it happening again, but then you know, we could have had this discussion in 2008 and uh, we all saw what happened, you know, in the subsequent years thereafter. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that all makes sense. And so we're also on the brink of a new refugee crisis, as we've talked about um, a fair bit already. And people who don't want refugees in the UK or the US tend to claim that refugees will bring terrorism with them. Is there any evidence that this does or doesn't happen? To be honest, the, the academic data shows that, you know, there isn't some massive influx of refugees engaging in terrorist activity or anything like that. Quite the opposite, in fact. Um, you know, we talk about terrorism as being the sort of product, as I say, of these quests or searches for identity, of this sense of trying to find a, a space in society, 
And, you know, that's really afflicting uh, sort of second, third generation diaspora communities more than it does refugee communities who, you know, when they arrive normally are faced with uh, just an overwhelming economic imperative to get on and to survive and to have food on the table and a roof over their head and to negotiate and navigate the sort of bewildering um, reality of arriving in a new country and starting a new life. So there, there isn't any major significant data to show uh, refugees becoming involved in terrorist activity. That's not to say they've never done it. It does happen, of course. But again, you can see in a few of those cases, it was either deliberately used by groups like ISIS to exploit migrant um, trails in order to get people into certain countries. Uh, but, but I wouldn't say it's the rule. It's rather the exception. Now we could probably do with a break after all that extremely heavy stuff. So it's time for the return of Wild Ideas. The high street's been hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. Many shops been forced to shut down as we've retreated into online retail. But could a free spending card lure shoppers back onto their local high streets? Aidan Michael Connolly, director of the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium, thinks so. My name is Aidan Connolly. I am the director of the Northern Ireland Retail Consortium. Well, the wild idea is a high street stimulus card which will give a certain amount of money to everybody who is over 18 and a citizen in Northern Ireland. This has been the worst period of time. It's well over a year, so I can't say the worst year, but it's been the worst period of time for both the retail, hospitality and high street in living memory. Uh, you know, I've heard some people call it our World War II because everything has been shut down. A lot of people are saying, why just give people uh, £100? Well, what it's actually doing is creating a virtuous circle of spend. And by that, I mean that people get to spend it in bricks and mortar stores. Uh, some of those will have local products made by local companies. While it's nice to provide people with some retail therapy and some nice experiences and nice meals out with that £100, what it's really doing is stimulating that economy at a time which would be usually quite quiet, that lull between summer and the start of the Christmas season. Now, what we do know is that from other countries, so from Jersey, from Taiwan, from Malta, that it does create that virtual circuit of spend. For those people who really need it, you've got to remember a lot of people have been on furloughs, so 80% of their wages. Some people have lost their jobs altogether. For those people, they can spend it on groceries or in their local butchers or whatever they need. But for the majority of people, this will help them to make other uh, purchases and, and have other nights out or experiences. And what we've seen from those other countries is that for every pound that's on their card, people usually spend a wee bit more. For some places, it was about £1.40 for every pound on the card. For Taiwan, it was £1.67 for every pound that was on a card. So again, a virtuous circle of spend. There's still some things that need to be ironed out. We're four weeks away from the start date on this. The guys who are getting the cards ready, have been working non-stop. We thought that it was going to take a lot longer, but we really do want to be hitting that lull in September to around the, the start of November before people spend their usual spend on, on Christmas. So this is supposed to be extra spend. We're also looking at how people who aren't online can sign up for this and how they can do it really, really quickly. Those bods within the Department of Finance and the Department of Economy who are, who are working on this seem quite assured that, that this will happen. It is quite a blunt instrument. It does help in, in a lot of ways. However, there are those naysayers who, you know, 
oh, the money could be better spent some other way or, you know, this isn't a, a long-term fix. Well, they're absolutely right. It isn't a long-term fix. But if it's enough to spur retail and hospitality back into life and to give them a bit of a cushion coming up to in, in, in a quiet period of the year, then it will have done what it needs to. I don't think it's going to be a, a sort of recurring long-term solution to any of these sort of problems but as far as maybe once maybe twice as having that sort of boost effect for the local economy i think it's a good idea finally it's a question for the ages if you could go back in time and change one event in history what would it be it's usually posed as the would you kill hitler question but would that necessarily be the thing that you'd do so we are suggesting to the panel that they each get one time travel token to go back and change one event to alter the future marie leconte what are you spending your time travel token on? Well, so obviously I, I was thinking about this earlier and obviously I know everyone says killing Hitler, but then I thought what would be like if you could kill, which I know is kind of a, a weird way to spend one's Monday afternoon, right? But um, <laughs> but I was thinking who is the one person I could kill in history that would make the most changes uh, to present day? And I settled on Genghis Khan and, you know, and I have no idea if, <laughs> you know, it'd be a good or bad thing in the long run. But I reckon that if I kill Genghis Khan as a child, that would probably the world would be unrecognizable today. Um, so just out of sheer curiosity, that's who I'd kill. That's what I do. Would it um, be better in a good way or a bad way, though? And also, I, could you take uh, Genghis Khan as a child? He's a pretty tough nut. I well, yeah. No, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. My thing is, you know, am I? Because I'm a naturally very curious person, but am mm. I? curious enough to kill a child uh well, i'm just have not to, sure you don't have to spend your time travel token on actually killing somebody you know you could you could go and you could go and find the guy who decided to put lead in petrol and say why don't you not put lead in petrol there are other ways you can change the future so that is true but crucially i think because of killing hitler i got really <laughs> stuck on the killing someone angle um so yeah specifically killing someone as a child as i've said i've just had a really fun afternoon um yeah, yeah to, so to, I think, think, to think we say that the french are a stereotypically combustible people who <laughs> the, uh, the drop of a hat unbelievable <laughs> yeah sorry so, so that's that yeah <laughs> we're tempted into any other kind of temporal uh, uh, intervention such as i don't know changing the u.s constitution to take out the second amendment you know no guns tones down the republican party it's, you just want to go and find somebody to kill in the past don't you yeah Justin Quirk, how about you? What are you going to spend your time travel token on? Well, uh, safely assuming that Marie would have the uh, physical violence and um, time travelling conflict covered, uh, I wanted to go a bit more lateral. So I'm going back, Andrew, to our former workplace. Oh. Yes, I'm going to February 1999 at the, head, the headquarters of EMAP Publishing. Mm. February 99, when discussions are underway to launch a weekly gossip magazine called Heat Magazine. <laughs> so... Why don't you sort of like bear with me on the counterfactual here? We, me, I send you in, I push you into the meeting, you rip down the whiteboard, you prevent Heat magazine, everything else. Heat was the essential propaganda sheet that supercharged the entire ecosystem around reality TV. That half a million copies a week strong Mobius strip between Big Brother, Pop Idol, X Factor, and it essentially hammered the idea into British public consciousness on a weekly basis that everyone in public life was just playing a character and shouldn't be taken seriously, that every issue could be boiled down to a binary yes or no vote, and that the public were the unfallible arbiters of wisdom whose wishes should be immediately acted on at all times. So I'm saying that if we go out and take out the Heat magazine Death Star in its inception, February 1999, (laughs) 
the extremely murky water, which gave us Farage, Johnson, all of your performance outrage, yeah. grifters, and the referendum, uh, doesn't happen. So I'm saying no heat, no reality TV, and none of, you know, this current shit. Hinge of history. Hmm, I'll take that one under advisement. Magazines were never that powerful. Or were they? I don't know. Shiraz, how about you? you, you where's your time travel token going? Yeah, I've been... Uh... I also sort of fixated on who who would you kill, and, and obviously Hitler was, <laughs> was right up there. Um, I was working on jihadism as a natural uh, <laughs> fake out. You can take the guy out of the jihadism. You can't take the jihadism out of the guy, can you, Shiraz? Exactly, exactly. But actually, one of the, you know, thing again in the region that I work on and stuff, I mean, Saddam Hussein's 1990 invasion of Kuwait is something I identify actually as the, the single most important pivotal moment in the, in the development of radical Islam as we know it today. And so that one small country being invaded by this guy changes the course of, I think, contemporary Islam quite dramatically, because it's in relation to that that the US comes into Saudi and that as military power, albeit through, through an alliance, not as, a, as, a, as an invader. But nonetheless, that's what starts this process of enmity uh, and, and sort of really brings the United States within the crosshairs of the jihadist movement. And I think a lot of things, a lot of lives would be very, very, very different today if Saddam hadn't gone in uh, at that point. So how do you change that? Do you go and poison Saddam's morning smoothie or do you, do you take uh, Comical Alley out of the picture so that the foolishness of this is exposed more quickly? I don't know. What's what's the little hinge that you push, Shiraz? Well, I suppose you just kill him. Just take him out. <laughs> it's all killing with you people, isn't it? It's a murderous bunch, you know. <laughs> Well, I I scoured uh, the potential things, and I thought, you know, could you, uh, you know, we'd find a way to fall nine eleven. But would those pressures really be any different? Would they? Would there be a search to find another terrorist spectacular? Do you uh, try and persuade Gordon Brown to go for an election in two thousand and seven when he might have won? Do you do you save the life of John Smith and you change the direction of the Labour Party? What I settled on was I was going to insinuate myself into the room in about nineteen ninety eight when Tony Blair was being urge goes goes the story that now is his time to finally and definitively purge the Labour Party, that he could cement it as a social direct party, social democratic party forever. And he could jettison the Corbyn, John McDonnell, Dennis Skinner, Diane Abbott left. He had the political capital to do it at that time. And he said, no, we're a broad church. The Labour Party is a broad church and all this kind of thing. And I look at it and think, well, obviously you would have preempted Corbynism. You would have preempted probably Ed Miliband in, in, in 2010, but you would have seen a completely different Labour Party with a with a, a, an even more kind of confident Blair. You might actually have seen a completely different trajectory for the Labour Party. So I don't know. So that's what I'd do. I'd get in there and I'd, I'd, I'd do horse whispering with Tonti and try and persuade him. Deathly silence here. Are you convinced, <laughs> Justin? You're a huge Tonti fan. I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of the man. And I'm, uh, yeah, I think that's an absolutely brilliant idea. And I think... You do forget there was that period where I think that majority they came in with in 97 was so big. There was a window of about 12 months where you felt like they could kind of have done anything. Yeah. And it would have washed. But and yeah, what did they do the in the Millennium Dome? Yeah. I mean, God, yeah. I mean they, really, they really should have gone for it then. Yeah. Marie, what were you just about to say something? Uh, no, I'm just saying I, I'm just quite disappointed you're not kidding anyone. Like, I'm, I'm not, just not interested if you're not I'm, kidding anyone. I'm not a murderous kind of guy. I just, you know, it, it just it just seems mean. And also, I, it, you know, okay, it's time travel. It's all fictitious, isn't it? But I, I, I honestly believe that killing people at, um, you know, at pivotal moments in history 
does it actually change anything? Were the pressures that drove Germany into the Second World War those kind of that that kind of terrible kind of noxious uh, agglomeration of anti-Semitism and uh, grievance after the First World War? Would it have just alighted on somebody else? Would, well, would we now be talking about know, Ernst Röhm or somebody as the monster of uh, the 20th century? You know what my answer to this is? There's only one way to find out. <laughs> Let's kill Hitler. <laughs> And that's the end of this week's bunker. Uh, and as usual, having done time travel, it's time for escape routes. What are the TV, films, music, books, or whatever else that are taking our panelists' minds away from the nerve-wracking world of politics? Marie, what are you? Uh, you've just been you've been in France on holiday, taking your mind away anyway. But what has been uh, keeping your mind off awful politics this week? <laughs> well, I feel slightly bad because I'm now. I worry this podcast is painting me in a worrying light. Uh, but I've been playing Dead Cells, which is a very fun sort of like quite shooty and. Um, have so you been I killing Hitler again? Uh, I, I've just been killing yeah all, all forms of monsters um, on yeah on Dead Cells. Very fun video game. I recommend what, it. What is it? What's it about? What's the gist of it? Oh, so it's a it's a roguelike game. So one of those are basically the the basic concept is your goal is to finish the entire game in one go because whenever you die you start again at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's actually quite grueling. I, I say fun. It's not that fun, but you sort of have to get to know the game so well that you can play it entirely from beginning to end about an hour and a half without dying at all with all different dungeons and enemies and stuff which is actually it is quite fun and i'd better say that you have to focus so much that actually it's quite good at sort of like blocking out everything else in your life i can see why that's an escape from politics because it is it's a it is a strong meta narrative it's closed it's got a beginning a middle and an end and when you've completed it it's done unlike politics which goes on forever and never stops exactly. justin how about you what have you been distracting yourself with um well i've, I've been in the, the post-lockdown spirit i've been raving on a sort of weekly basis for the last couple of weeks seeing all the uh all the great titans of kind of old man deep house raving so i've seen dj harvey moths at work body and soul uh all the greats so the last week but i just wanted to mention with breaking news today and um, brian travers founding member of oh yeah Corsi, had died at just 62 that was announced today and i think hugely underrated band I mean, everyone remembers you know just the big cover version the first couple of albums brilliant brilliant music um and I would say if you can find it, there's a brilliant uh, BBC film called Promises and Lies from a couple of years ago about the, uh, choose my words carefully here, um, financial misunderstandings and mm. uh, egos, which have effectively split not just the band, but also the entire Campbell family completely mm. down the middle. And even if you've got no interest in their music, it's an amazing portrait of this group who probably did as much as anyone to popularise reggae worldwide but it's also really genuinely one of the most tragic films i've ever seen about music it's an awful story about this band who had everything and did everything and then somehow squandered all of it brian travers is one of the first people i ever interviewed as a as a working music journalist is my first proper job after i left university and i had no clue what i was doing i was completely all over the place and brian travers was the nicest guy he really did look after this completely clueless little squirt who turned up with his crap questions and he was really funny and it was he he still he remains one of the nicest people i've ever interviewed so definitely r.i.p brian travers 62 is no age it is no age shiraz how about you have you been taking your mind off the horror of the world so I've been doing it in two ways, really. One is uh, a mate posted me a copy of A Gentleman in Moscow, which I've, I've recently started reading, and that's mm. fantastic. It's beautifully written, um, and it, it's a sort of nice escape from thinking about the Middle East and all the rest, of, albeit a Bolshevik uh, uh, Russia, but nonetheless, it's it's a world away from uh, what I've been looking at. So so that's 
uh, a nice uh, uh, distraction. And the football season started again, so that's also yeah. keeping me uh, very entertained, albeit worrying as uh, I'm a Crystal Palace supporter and uh, um, we have a new manager and I'm not sure how it's going to go. But Vieira, he's all right. You're in safe-ish hands. <laughs> Great player. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I thought... Uh, you know, we were always going to get turned over in the first game against Chelsea, but but last week against Brentford, it was all right. It was all right. It's going to be a long season and an interesting one, and I suppose that's why you know any of us watch football. You've got to be along for the ride. Well, my escape route is I'm finally, finally, finally going to a gig tonight, and I'm so excited. And it's Horace Andy, the great angelic voice of reggae, who you may know from various Massive Attack albums. He, he sings Angel. He sings uh, Man Next Door. Horace Andy has a voice like no one else. He's been in reggae since since time, as they say. And I'm a massive kind of... Like, a lot of people listening to this podcast, I'm a great big atheist, I'm a hollow man without a soul, but when I hear Horace Andy sing, I'm able to apprehend the spiritual, and I'm really looking forward to that. It's tonight at the Jazz Cafe in London, so I am thrilled. An actual gig for the first time in 18 months. I, I would completely concur. Horace Andy is one of those sort of direct line to God musicians. His voice, and he's still... I mean, he must be in his late 60s now, and that sort of heat-invoiced yeah. falsetto that he's got is still absolutely perfect. He's so, so beautiful. It is. Well, there you go. Joe Harrison, step forward tonight. And I was going to say, most people, I should say, the vast majority won't know, but we know each other from, from Glastonbury. Which we is do. We get together every summer. So I'm looking forward to that when it's back on. To- Definitely. We will be there come hell or high water. Shiraz Mayer, our special guest, thank you for joining us on The Bunker. Thanks for having me. And thanks to regulars, Marie LeCant. Oh, thanks for having me. And Justin Quirk. Thank you for having me. We will be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to help us keep going, then one thing you can do is forward this podcast to three friends who might be interested. Uh, we're trying to spread the word. We're enlisting the power of the worldwide Bunker Army. Um, so, yeah, just use the show link if you're listening on, on your device now. Send it via email or just tweet it to like-minded people it's the best way to keep the podcast uh, moving up the charts and in people's minds and of course if you want to back us on patreon then that would be wonderful too just search patreon bunker podcast to find out how you can get the show early without adverts and those are all the good free stuff too supporters get a shout out on the show and here are some now best wishes from me to ruth shafto Stuart charlesworth and tessa o'neill Many thanks from me to Anne Carrot Wells, Tash Mercer, and Nick Horn. And finally, best wishes from me to Christopher Worrell, James Lever, wrong podcast mate, and Kate Anstey. Thanks for backing us, and we'll see you next time. The Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Marie LeConte and Justin Quirk. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>